0: Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots.
1: This is the Giant Robot Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytel, and with me today is Art Pappas, CEO and co-founder of Bullhorn. Art, thanks for joining me.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited.
1: So Bullhorn is recruitment software, but I'm sure that there's a lot that makes it special. So why don't you uh, tell people what exactly Bullhorn is and what makes it special?
0: Yeah. So Bullhorn is a software company, all cloud-based software, focused on a vertical industry that not a lot of people know a lot about. We focus on the staffing industry. And Mm -hmm. so we go really, really deep in addressing the needs of of staffing businesses. And I think a lot of people hear recruitment and they think, oh, like my corporate HR department has needs for software. We don't really do that as Mm -hmm. much more we focus on the businesses that are in the business of recruitment. So if you've ever worked, I I don't know, have you ever worked as a temporary employee for like early. I haven't, in your but
1: actually one of our early clients at Thoughtbot was a biotechnology staffing firm. So they provide staff to companies in biotechnology who are sort of going through FDA approval and need to staff up researchers and clinicians and that kind of thing. So, they provided that kind of staffing. So, we actually, we've worked with companies that do that. Yeah. So, you get to know
0: that kind of business. Yeah. It's rare that I meet people who have a lot of exposure to a staffing business unless you've worked as a temp or you hire temps. There are like 15 million people that every year in the US that act as temporary employees and get deployed by our customers. It's funny. It's like a, it's not a well known industry, but it turns out to be really big and it's an exciting place for us to be. But I, I mean, when I started the company, I knew nothing about the staffing industry at all. It was, yeah. So it was- why
1: did you start the company then?
0: <laughs> um, well, so it was 1999 and I was working for a really great software company and I decided that I could do better and I wanted to go to a startup and I joined a really crappy startup that couldn't raise capital. And uh, like in 1999, all you had to do was say that your company was doing something on the internet and venture capital was free-flowing but these guys just for whatever reason couldn't raise money which in hindsight it was really serendipitous and great for me because they laid me off um because the company went bankrupt and they gave me 3 weeks severance which at 24 years old sounded like a lot of money to me I, you know i figured wow that's if i'm going to start a company now now is the opportunity because i have this money in the bank which was like really dumb in <laughs> hindsight but at the time seemed like a lot of money and so i had just been introduced through a friend um to another guy who wanted to start a business and he was like a really great salesman i was a really young but you know talented i believe that was hugely talented developer and we met a third co-founder who was coming out of deloitte and touche and was a finance guy and we said okay like we got a salesperson, somebody who can make product, and somebody who can help us keep track of all the money we make. Great, we've got a makings of a business. So we started a business to try to be a marketplace for creative talent. Which today there's a couple different platforms that do that. One of them is Upwork. We end Upwork. were competing back, mm-hmm. you know, 20 years ago, back before there was a market. And um, so we launched this thing. We raised money, and we found out that. While creatives were ready to put their portfolios online and bid on projects, companies were not willing to hire people on the internet in 1999. And so, we were trying to figure out what could we do. And one of my investors said, "Hey, I know this woman who runs a staffing agency. You should talk to her." And I'm like, "One, what is a staffing agency? And two, why should I talk to her?" He said, "Well, you're kind of trying to like place freelancers and contractors online." And that's what she does. And she told me she needs a business system to run her business. And so you should meet her. And I was thinking, like, I'm not an IT guy. I'm not going to go meet with this woman and, you know, build her an internal system. But it was funny because I I got kind of intrigued with her problem. She had three different offices. None of them can communicate, but they had to communicate. And so they were emailing each other all sorts of information and classic, like, problem solving, I said, what have you tried? And she said, well, we tried to synchronize Lotus Notes databases between our offices, but it's a nightmare, and I'm spending all this money on Lotus Notes developers. And she said, you know, my my offices need to be able to be in sync. And I said, that's, like, what the internet was built for. I'll make you an application on the web she said, that sounds terrifying. Like all my information is going to be on the World Wide web. And like, I had to explain like what that meant and the owner's security and your data safe, safer than it is in your back closet of your, your office where it was currently. And she became my first customer and I programmed the application myself and uh, worked kind of tirelessly to, to get her what she needed. And eventually it was a game changer for her business. And she said, you know, you could sell this to every staffing firm in the world because we all have the same problem. And so I was like, okay, we have a business model. So that, that was sort of like, no looking back. Like we went from, you know, one or two customers and my co-founder like in one year sold a hundred accounts himself. And, um, all of a sudden we had a business, you know, that set us on a journey that's Mm -hmm. been pretty incredible. So today the business is over a thousand employees and we're growing really quickly. We're in like almost every major city in the world. It's been pretty incredible journey.
1: I usually don't pull in ongoing conversations like this, but that story resonates with something that I saw online recently. I don't know if you saw it, but Joel from Joel on software and Joel Spolsky said like, you need to have a problem that's eating you from the inside in order to be successful in business and then DHH said, no, you don't. So, you know, you discovered this problem. It wasn't something, it wasn't in the industry that you were in, everything. So...
0: It was not <laughs> eating me at all. <laughs> but it was mm-hmm. eating up my customers. Like, every single customer I talked to, they were like, we have, like, conference calls every afternoon to sync. And by the time I met a customer who had 50 offices, I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> He's like, it's yeah. chaos. I, You know, it was sort of like how did they operate before the internet. And it was, you know, email and conference bridges and spreadsheets flying around. And it was just total chaos. So it was like an enormous problem for them that was eating them and Mm -hmm. they were spending tons of money on it. And, you know, we just got really lucky to find that. But I'll tell you what I was passionate about. What was eating me was like, I wanted to solve that problem because like I felt like that was just wrong. Like the the way that they were operating sucked. And I thought, wow, this could be so much better. Then the customer would come to me and be like, you know, my users hate this. And oh, you hate something about my software. Like I need to solve that. Like Mm -hmm. that became my burning problem that I needed to solve. But so like, yeah, I'd say it's sort of right, but it doesn't, the initial problem doesn't need to be yours, but it needs to become yours. Yeah.
1: So things started to grow very quickly from there for you. At what point did things change in terms of like deciding to seek outside investment and that kind of thing along the way?
0: Our story is kind of funny. We started with outside investment right away and we blew it. Like we built built this online marketplace. We hired a bunch of salespeople and marketing people before we had product market fit. And that was a valuable lesson in my heart I knew that the product wasn't quite ready and we were dumping money into marketing and and the customers just weren't adopting. And I was like, I don't think this is like a make it up on volume thing, but we went and blew a couple million dollars of venture money in 2000 very quickly. And you know we were left with about 800,000 in the bank and a, our burn was $250,000. I have the slides where I presented to my board you know, hey, if we don't get more money, we're going to have to make deep cuts. And they were like, well, you're not getting more money. Right. And this was like right as the staffing software product was starting to take hold. And we had our first two customers. And I, I, could, I was shocked. I couldn't believe like the investors wouldn't support what seemed to me to be a real business. They were kind of down on like, hey, I don't know if that can ever be a big business. That industry isn't that big. I don't know much about the staffing market which in hindsight like they were way off. Mm-hmm. You know, they were like, okay, oh, that even be a 10 million dollar business, you know. <laughs> it was like, okay. So we had to bootstrap and we had to customer fund from that point. We had to make some cuts initially and then we got the burn down to like 100k and and then every customer was funding us and we didn't take any more outside capital. Other than we took in like two million after that in the form of a weird merger and like it was, a, it was very complicated, but suffice it to say, like we essentially customer funded from two thousand three when we became profitable to two thousand and eight when Highland Capital and General Catalyst came along and were like, you know, we'll give you money. I wasn't looking to raise. I'd kind of given up on raising venture capital because you know I, I just didn't think people were going to fund the business. And then these guys kind of sought me out and said, we want to buy out your original investors and let's go build the business up. And so I'm a big fan of bootstrapping. I think it's a really great way to build a business.
1: So given that you were bootstrapping and given that you're a technical co-founder, as you started to scale and scale the team, were there things that you did intentionally to set up your company in a way that was conducive to building a great product?
0: I, you know, I think I wasn't the greatest CTO ever. And if you ask the developers about the code that I used to write, it was pretty ugly. It was really, really designed for one person to maintain it. You know, I had developers that we hired, but it was not anywhere near the level of thought that you need to put into, you know, okay, how do I structure this so that it's modular and teams can kind of come in and come out and you get hired contractors to support it or whatever. It was like, just really slopped together. But the one thing that I think we did get right is we really focused on culture and core values pretty early on in the business. And I read Jack Welsh winning, like must've been 15 years ago. And I love that book. And a lot of people are like, oh, it's all about laying people up. Like that's like not at all really part of the book. What he really talks about is like corporate culture. How do you support it? What does it mean? And for me, it all boiled down to values. And I tried to answer the question, like, how do my, my customers want me to behave? And when I behave properly, what does that look like? And it was stuff like ownership, which is like, okay, do what you say you're going to do. And if you have to reset expectations, reset them before deadlines occur. You know, because I would have experience with customers where they'd get really frustrated when I tell them we were going to ship a feature And then I couldn't ship it, but I discovered that if you tell them, hey, this feature's taking me uh, at least another week, more than I expected, they're like, oh, that's fine. (laughs) It's like, oh, okay. So resetting expectations is a good part of like, you know, giving good service. And then, you know, other things like the way I define service is not do whatever it takes for the customer, although you do your best, but I define service as leaving the customer feeling that you care deeply about doing a good job. And, you know, you can't always. You know, change the product to be what they want it to be. But you can certainly make them feel like you're really thinking about how to address their feedback or how to give them what they need. And so the core values became really critical to our culture. And, and I think ultimately that's what allowed me to hire a great CTO who then built scalable processes and built a product that could be maintained by more than just me. Although I will say UX was really important to me early on, mm-hmm. super important.
1: Were you the one doing that or did you also hire people who matched those values on the design side?
0: Initially, it was me. But mm-hmm. then once we, got, once we got to around three, four million in revenue, we started building a real team. Mm-hmm. But it was late. It was late. I was doing a lot of programming up until like 2005, like too much for a CEO, frankly.
1: <laughs> yeah. So you hired a CTO to replace you and you became CEO? What was the sequence of events there?
0: Yeah, the sequence was I became CEO and kept coding for like five years and then hired a CTO. I was not the most approachable because like if you came into my office, there was a good chance that I was like just cranking code and mm-hmm. it wasn't very easy to talk to me. <laughs> but, but the numbers were pretty good. Was that so.
1: what the company needed at the time or was that a mistake in retrospect?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. It was 100% a mistake. Okay, (laughs) (laughs) But in my mind, I really thought that that was what the company like, I thought that I was like Amadeus, Mm -hmm. and I just got to write this whole thing. And you know, it's like, like, no, (laughs) that's not right. You can just hire really good people and get scale.
1: What was the turning point for realizing that for you?
0: I think it was getting to the point where it was becoming obvious to me that I was not keeping up with what the company needed. And I wasn't being a CEO. And I was getting feedback from employees like, hey, you know, it's great that you like coded all this stuff, but like we'd love to have like a town hall where we talk about what's going on in the business. And I was like, Yeah, you know, I'm not I'm not really being a CEO. I'm just I'm being a programmer who is managing investors by sharing financial results. But my employees really told me like There's a bunch of stuff you're not doing that you should be. And I listened to that.
1: How difficult was it to give that up and to find someone to take over?
0: It was awful. It was really hard. (laughs) It was really hard. It was hard for me to give it up. I felt like it was what I was good at. So I clung to it. And I didn't know what to expect from bringing somebody in. And I ended up hiring somebody originally to be the CTO who was somebody I had worked with. In my original first company and so like i had trust i knew that he was good at building software and i learned a lot from him and so i brought him in and his first thing was like you know one we got to get off cold fusion and get this thing into java and then two we have to build an open set of apis which i was like why the hell do we need open apis that doesn't make any sense to me he was absolutely right about that Mm -hmm. because that later became critical difference between us and all the competition. So yeah, it took a while and it took bringing in somebody that I I knew I could trust.
1: Was it difficult for you to step away or or because you had that trust, it was easier?
0: It was still hard. Mm -hmm. And it took about three years for me to really fully trust that I don't have to code anymore. Mm -hmm. And they finally took away my source code access in 2008.
1: So they actually took it away.
0: Yeah, I asked them to. I was like, I'm just going to do more harm than good. And I was like looking at check-ins and I'm like, I shouldn't be looking at these. Like, this isn't good.
1: (laughs) So what do you do now that you didn't do before?
0: Well, now I have a great team that tells me what they're doing and what's going on and shares their challenges. Our CTO now is also, he's pretty deeply ingrained in the operations of the business. And so he runs professional services and tech support and R and D and product. And so like, if we have a problem in the product, he's going to hear about it and mm-hmm. he's going to solve it before I do. And so now like I spent a lot of my time when it comes to product stuff, thinking about sort of the long-term vision. So I, rather than thinking about this year's roadmap, I'm thinking about, okay, strategically, what are the gaps in our product lines that we can fill over the next five years? And what kind of revenue could that drive? And then what are the opportunities? like my CTO and I, Matt, we spent a lot of time talking about AI and what can we be doing with AI. And none of that's going to generate any revenue in 19, but 2025, it could be generating as much revenue as the entire company is today. It's just, you just have to make the right bets. So I get to spend a lot of time thinking about that stuff. And mm-hmm. then he's got a team that's worried about what's the quality of the last release. and. You know, is the UI consistent? And are we adhering to our design guide and all that?
1: And then I imagine you have a team of other operational people that you also spend time with and and work with on other parts of the business.
0: Yeah, if you look at my week, I spent a lot of time with my direct reports. I spent a lot of time with the sales folks. Uh, I spent a lot of time with marketing, head of marketing, head of sales, our CFO, our chief people officer. And then Matt and I spend a ton of time talking about what's going on in the business. That's like my Monday and Tuesday are filled up with that. and then a big team meeting. But then, you know, Wednesday through Friday, I'm traveling, seeing customers. I'm dropping in on on meetings throughout the office. I'm talking to investors. Mm-hmm. It's actually a pretty great gig,
1: well, I was going to ask. I mean, having gone through that transition, are you happy now?
0: Oh, yeah, good. I mean, I still have PowerPoint and I can do some amazing things with PowerPoint and like.
1: <laughs> Your programming is PowerPoint?
0: Yeah, when I want to be creative, I, I do some crazy stuff. I either go crazy in Excel modeling something or I uh, I go nuts in PowerPoint, mm-hmm. you know, or I play my guitar. That's uh, <laughs> Those are the three creative outlets.
1: So it's been almost 20 years now, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. And you've it's been exciting.
1: through some big transitions personally and as a company. Is there a way that you can see your job changing further?
0: Um, That's a great question, because if you had asked me 10 years ago, or let's say 15 years ago, and you said you think you'll be the CEO of a 100-person company, I would have said no. You know, that's a ton of people. And even 10 years ago, you think you'll be CEO when a 1,000 people, I would have said no. It's like a big company, and that job has to be really boring, and you're in meetings all day. And yeah, you're in a lot of meetings. But you do a lot of really interesting stuff, too. Like, I get to have conversations with customers that, for instance, I always looked at the largest staffing firms in the world as, like, you know, I'd be, like, terrified to talk to the CEOs of those companies. And now I I do regularly. Mm -hmm. And we have really interesting conversations about, like, what's going on high-level trends in the industry. And that's a cool job. Like, I've kind of taken the approach now of, like, I don't want to fast forward and think, like, I know what life will be like five years from now, I just kind of want to get there and see what it's like. And as long as I like it, that's cool. I'll keep Mm -hmm. doing it. And as long as I'm good at it. I don't like doing things that I'm not good at.
1: Yeah. So how many people is Bullhorn now?
0: A thousand. Yeah. Just under a thousand.
1: And are they all in the Boston area?
0: They're pretty spread out. Mm -hmm. So we have a big office here in Boston. That's the headquarters. And then our next biggest office is in St. Louis and then London, Atlanta. After that, Rotterdam that's sort of our european headquarters and then uh sydney so you mentioned the team meeting is that
1: an all-company meeting every week
0: no no we do we do all-company meetings about every six weeks Mm -hmm. but my team is just really just my direct reports and we meet every week
1: okay and for those all-company meetings about every six weeks how are you doing that across all of the locations and making that work well
0: Yeah, so we're using just a webinar format, Mm -hmm. you know, so people can kind of get the video and the the audio um, wherever they are. And all the teams actually get together and watch them. So, like, the London office will all assemble in one room to watch the town hall. And sometimes somebody in London will be presenting and sometimes Mm -hmm. not. It's not working hours for everyone, right? No, that's true. We try to do it. To optimize for the most coverage, but a lot of people watch the video afterwards. Mm-hmm. So we'll record it and we'll send it out, and we also summarize it with like a digest format. There's a bunch of ways people can consume that, but it is a cha- it is certainly a challenge. Like you know, sort of around the clock. You know, how do you engage people in a town hall format? How do you? <laughs> well, I also do sort of village halls where. I'll either go to an office and gather them together and let them ask me questions, or I'll I'll do it almost like this. Mm -hmm. Like I'll do like a go-to meeting or a Zoom where I let the office just kind of hit me with questions and that works pretty well.
1: Do you find that people generally understand or that you find that you're repeating the same message over and over and over again as CEO Mm -hmm. (laughs) so that everyone hears it and everyone understands it?
0: yeah it's a great question i mean the first time i realized that not everybody's tuned into what 100 percent of what you're saying is i you know i was really frustrated i was like what you know what's wrong with them like why don't they listen <laughs> then you get over it and you're like okay i don't listen to everything i hear <laughs> so i sort of adopted the you know i heard this thing you get to repeat something four times i don't know if that's true right. whether it's four times or three times I think sometimes like consultants say things and then they write a book and next thing you know, everybody's repeating themselves four times or, you know, asking your customers questions like, Mm -hmm. would you refer me to a friend? I mean, that's it's sort of infantile when you think about it. But it is true that people don't hear everything you say. And so you do have to repeat yourself. I generally think that if I come up with something that I want the team to know, I've got to say it at least in a town hall and then get somebody on my team to reiterate it to them. And I also feel like you need to send it in email and then I never want to do a town hall and have the same script twice, but I will cover the same topic in different ways. So for instance, like we'll roll out a goal for the year and I'll talk about it in a town hall. And then the next town hall, I'll give an update on how we're doing and sort of do a sidebar of like, Hey, by the way, remember last time we talked about how important this was and and so I'll cover remnants of what I covered the, the time before, but mm-hmm. I'm making sure that the message isn't just coming from me because I think if it's just coming from me and I'm just a broken record, like that's when you, people really tune out and yep. they're like, okay, this is awful. Yep. Got to keep it fresh.
1: One of the things that I've tried to do, so ThoughtBot has six studios, London, and then five across the U.S., and leveraging also the fact that people learn information different ways. So I know I probably need to get a point out there multiple times before people really retain it and understand it. So realizing, well, I could do that via video and via, you know, talking with someone and then also written. And those are different channels we can use that also align with like the way different ways people learn because I also got really frustrated with having to say the same thing multiple times or what I was doing was monthly sort of town halls with each studio and so many of the questions or the points I was trying to make were the same. So I would be doing that six times, often three or four times in the same day and it was really wearing on me. <laughs> and said, so I have to find yeah. a different way to communicate these things to people.
0: That's totally true. You know. Another thing that that works well too, I found is like, if you come up with sound bites that people can grab onto Mm -hmm. and repeat, then you don't have to repeat the message. So a good example of that is we did five acquisitions last year and it got a little insane. And a lot of the questions I was getting was like, you know, do we really even have a plan? We're buying so many companies, what's going on? It's confusing. It feels chaotic. And I was like, look, we're going through turbulence. And I put up a picture of an airplane cabin that was all shaky. And I used that term turbulence, like must've been like 10 times in this Mm -hmm. town hall. And I was like, do you ever hear the captain say, we're going through turbulence and we're all going to die? No, like it's, we're going through turbulence. It's going to be okay, but it'll be a little shaky. And have you had the thought like, yeah, this is scary. Of course, but then it's over and you're fine. And all of a sudden people started to reference that term mm-hmm. because it was so like the visual was so strong. And the, and then the association, the next town hall, people were like, it seems like the turbulence is quieted down now. And so yeah. people love sound bites. I found that's like a really effective vehicle for packaging a message up. I wish I were really good at them. Some people are like natural marketers. That one, I, I sort of got unconsciously competent. But yeah, if I could do that all the time, I'd that'd be pretty
1: cool. Yeah. (laughs) So at Bullhorn, you have different markets that you operate in. You have a platform, but that platform is composed of different solutions, right? Yeah. And you mentioned you've done quite a few acquisitions. Have those been to bring in technology, different pieces of the platform, people, or different reasons for each one?
0: Yeah, different reasons for each one. Mm -hmm. We've done about 10 acquisitions some were about people and sort of aqua hire some were product acquisitions and some were you know one example was we were trying to replatform our core product and we had two companies in our space that were trying to do the same thing and i went to both of them and said why don't we do this together and put the three companies together and accelerate the roadmap for everybody and that that actually worked out really well. And so sometimes it's about filling a gap in the product portfolio, like three of the acquisitions we did last year were about that. And then sometimes it's about teams and market opportunity or, or customers. Mm-hmm. One of the acquisitions we did last year was like, they had a huge customer that we, we really wanted. And so we acquired him. In all cases though, our goal is to get standardized the technology. So we have an offering that's our platform and it's a front office solution. Mm -hmm. That's the original platform. We acquired a company that does time and expense management, so we've now tied that into our platform. It's now part of our platform. We bought a company that does what we did uh, with our flagship product, but they did it on the Salesforce platform. Okay, Mm -hmm. well, we're gonna leave that on the Salesforce platform because some customers wanna be on that platform. We didn't change out all the technology. However, we were stitching all the the products into that so that whether you use that platform or our platform, it's all really sort of like one solution suite. So we're pretty aggressive about integrating technology because the last thing customers want is like to feel like they're jumping from one acquisition product mm-hmm. to another. Mm-hmm. You want a unified user experience for sure.
1: So one thing that can frustrate companies as they grow to certain sizes is feeling like it becomes hard to create new products yourself, to incubate new ideas and to actually push them through and to get them out the door. Is that something that you faced?
0: I think it's hard to create disruptive products inside of a, an established company. You know, Amazon and Apple have proven that they can do that. I think that most companies struggle with that and they end up acquiring. However, I think that you know, in our case, where we're still in a situation where there's so much enterprise software in our industry that's still moving to the cloud, mm-hmm. that that is the disruptive wave. You could have said, oh, is mobile disruptive? You know, I'd argue not really. Like Mobile is really just an alternate flavor of SaaS. AI yeah. is disruptive, but it's still early. Yep. And so we're investing and we've got two teams that are working on AI projects. Will they be the ones that prevail? I don't know however i look at it and say okay we have this enormous data set we have 600 billion records on our platform if anybody's going to be able to do something in ai in the staffing industry it should be us so whether we build something or we see somebody innovating and doing something disruptive and then we acquire them that's always open to us i do think doing truly disruptive work is hard you have to have like the right people And you have to give them the right framework and the right structure and the right autonomy. Otherwise, they get stifled. That whole book, Innovator's Dilemma, is about that, right? Right.
1: Well, Art, thanks for sharing. If people want to get in touch with you or or follow along or find out more about Blowhorn, where's all the places that they can do that?
0: Well, I'm on Twitter, Art Pappas, and I'm on LinkedIn, of course. And if people want to email me, I'm just Art at Blowhorn.com. I kind of hide in plain sight. So... (laughs)
1: Thanks so much for sharing. I really appreciate it. And I wish you and Bullhorn all the best as you continue to grow.
0: Yeah, thanks. Really enjoyed the conversation.
1: You can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode, including all the links that are just mentioned at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm. And you can find me on Twitter at CPITEL. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. Thanks for listening and see you next time.
0: This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.